My uh, grandfather was born in 1893 and then he died in 1974. So over the span of those 81 years, he witnessed a lot of changes. The world that he was born into wasn't anything at all like the world that he finally departed from. And as a little boy, I was curious about that. I knew the world he lived in as a child wasn't anything at all like the world that I was living in, and I was curious about those differences. So I was all the time talking to my grandpa and asking him questions like, Grandpa, what was it like when there was no such thing as TV? I mean, what would you do for entertainment? I mean, how can you have fun in a world where there's no screen to watch? Or, Grandpa, what was it like when there's no indoor plumbing and most houses had no electrical power at all? I mean, the middle of the night, dead of winter, it's freezing cold outside, you've got nothing but a candle or a lantern to guide you, and yet you've got to go outside to find some relief. How do you survive in an environment like that? See, with all the modern conveniences I had in my life, I just couldn't imagine how anybody could exist without those things. But it was the conversation that we had about the car that intrigued me the most. There in that tiny town of St. Augustine, just 20 miles south of Galesburg, Illinois, total population 150. That's the town that my grandpa grew up in. And there, back in the early 1900s, the people of St. Augustine, they all knew about cars, but nobody drove one. They still preferred to get around on horse and buggies. And as a little boy, that just didn't make any sense to me. Why pick a horse over a car? So Grandpa explained. He said, well, because, David, there were no paved roads. And the only places cars could go were on the pathways that were already there, the trails and alleyways that were filled with all kinds of ruts and puddles. So driving a car on a surface like that <laughs> was not a pleasant experience. Made for a very bumpy ride. And then on those days with your car, when you get stuck in one of those giant potholes, it could just be so aggravating because now you have to bring in all the horses to pull the car out. So why even bother with a car when it's much easier to get around on the horse? This is why Henry Ford, when he built that giant factory up there in Detroit so he could produce more and more automobiles, he at the very same time began this ambitious campaign to pave the streets of America because, hey, you got a smooth surface. Man, driving a car can be a blast, but without those paved roads, driving a car can be a real pain. Well, over the years, I've thought about that image. You know, driving a car on an uneven path. Here you got something really nice to drive, and yet the roads you have to drive it on are so bad. Bone jarring, bone shaky. And as I thought about that, I realized that is a perfect picture of the Christian life as we now experience it. I mean, haven't you ever wrestled with this paradox how being a Christian brings you the greatest happiness you can ever know? That is so true. And yet, at the very same time, being a Christian brings you into one of the hardest lives you're ever going to have to live. Happy and yet hard at the very same time? How can that be? Well, here's the image that helps me to understand. When I become a Christian, it's like I got a new car to drive. And yet, because of the kind of world I live in, I've got to drive this car on some pretty bad roads. When I become a Christian, I've got a new life, a great life. But for right now, I've got to live that life in a very tough environment. You know, when I become a Christian, I, have, I receive a new spirit. I become a new person on the inside. I've got a new life within me. But I'm a new man in an old body. You remember how the Apostle Paul described this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4? He said, though the, inner, though the inner man is being renewed day by day, yet the outer part of me, my flesh, my body, is slowly wasting away. One part of me is getting better and better all the time, but the other part of me is getting worse. New car on some bad roads. So part of what I'm waiting for right now as a Christian is the promise that God made that one day he's going to give me a brand new body to go along with this brand new spirit so that I can live in a brand new world, a world where I'm going to be free to move around with any kind of obstacles, no sickness, no illness, no pain, no physical breakdowns of any kind. None of the frustrations that we experience in this life right now it always makes me think of that hymn, Oh, that will be glory. But we're not there yet. 
<laughs> we're still back in the horse and buggy days, which means that there are going to be days when my spirit's ready to go, but my body isn't, and it's going to make for a pretty bumpy ride. You know, when you've got a migraine headache, you don't feel like getting together with the church and singing praises to the Lord. When it feels like somebody hits your head with a sledgehammer, man, you don't want to get out of bed and serve the Lord. Or You remember the 12 disciples and the experience they had? That night when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, three different times he asked his friends to watch and pray. And yet every time when he came back to check on them, what were they doing? Instead of praying, they were sleeping. And you remember the comment that Jesus made? Jesus said, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Meaning, these are good men. They have good hearts. They meant well, but their bodies just could not keep up with those good intentions. I mean, think about it. It had been a long day, all kinds of activity that day. And then finally, late that night, they had this heavy meal the Passover, and it's there at the Passover that Jesus shares all this shocking information how he's getting ready to leave them. What? Whoa, wait a minute. You're leaving? Where are you going? And then how in the next 24 hours they're all going to scatter? Scatter? You mean we're not going to be together as a group anymore? I mean, just one surprise after another dumped on them all at once. And mentally trying to sort through that and make sense of what Jesus is saying, that could be so taxing on the brain. So late at night when they finally finish the Passover and they walk out of that room and they walk out of Jerusalem and they climb that hill and they finally get to the garden. By the time they get to the garden, mentally and physically, they are weary. So instead of praying, which they really wanted to do, but instead of praying, they just kept falling asleep. We can identify with that. And then here's another aspect of the struggle. It's not just these physical weaknesses that we struggle with each day. It's also this fact, our sin. And because of our sin, our flesh is now corrupt. The bad thoughts, the bad habits we've picked up in the past, the bad experiences we went through. So that now we have these cravings and these lusts and these addictions that keep pulling us in the wrong direction. You know, it's like you're driving a car where the wheels are out of alignment. And you grip that steering wheel with all your might and try to keep the car turned the right way. And yet the car, because the car itself is out of alignment, it keeps wanting to go the other way. So you're, there's this constant battle going on. You're doing everything you can to keep the car on the road, and yet the car wants to keep going off into the ditch. Well, every day as Christians, we feel that same tug of war. We've got these new spirits all the time urging us to do what is right. And yet we got this flesh that's always wanting to go the other way and go off and do something wrong. And then there's this. It's not only we have a new spirit and an old body, a body that is both physically and spiritually crippled. But it's also the fact that we are right now living in a broken down world, a world that doesn't function the way it's supposed to. Earthquakes, hurricanes, droughts, poison ivy, mosquito bites, flu bugs. Man, how do you stay healthy and strong when you have to live in such an unhealthy, unsafe environment? And then on top of that, we have this enemy called Satan, who along with all the forces of darkness, they're working hard day and night to trick and deceive us and to ruin and destroy our life with God. So with all that opposition, with all of those hardships, with all of those battles we have to fight, how can you possibly win? That's why I want us to take a look at 2 Timothy. Because here we have two men, Paul and Timothy, talking about what it really means to follow Jesus. And only when you appreciate the hardships that these two guys have been through. I mean, Timothy, Timothy, Paul, following Jesus has been anything but easy for them. So only when you appreciate the hardships we've been through, then you begin to understand why they're saying what they're saying here. So before we dive into the text, first of all, consider Paul and then Timothy. And where they're at at this particular moment that the letters are being written. Think about the Apostle Paul. 
Years earlier, when he wrote 1 Timothy, he was mobile. I mean, he's out of prison, he's on the go, he's traveling from city to city, visiting churches, he's making more and more disciples of Jesus, lots and lots of freedom. But by the time of 2 Timothy, he's been arrested again. And this time, when he goes to court, it doesn't turn out so well. He's now sitting on death row, awaiting execution. And right now, he's in a prison. The kind of prison is so different from the kind of prison we found him in when he was there in Acts chapter 28. You know, at the end of the book of Acts, first time the Apostle Paul comes to Rome, he's under confinement, this kind. He's living in a small apartment that he has to pay for. 24-7, he's chained to a Roman soldier, so there's always somebody, the eyes, somebody always watching him. So he's never allowed to leave the room. He's living under confinement, and yet, in this situation, he's free to have all kinds of visitors. So there's people coming and going all the time. Well, after Acts chapter 28, we learned from Clement and Eusebius and other people like that, there was a trial, and Paul ends up getting released. So he heads out on another missionary journey. I mean, he's back. For the next couple of years, he leaves Rome. He's traveling around other parts of the world. He's back in action again. But by the time of 2 Timothy, he's in trouble. He's back in prison, and this time it's a much different kind of prison, which helps us to understand when you get down to the very end of this chapter, 2 Timothy, you get down to verses 16, 17, 18, and you read about this guy, Onesiphorus, and how he travels 1,200 miles from Ephesus to Rome just so he can visit Paul. And yet when he gets to Rome, he has trouble finding him. I mean, you read down there in verse 17, it says, and, and when, he, when he came to Rome, meaning Onesiphorus, when he came to Rome, Paul says, he searched hard for me until he found me. And it kind of gives you the impression he had to search for a long time before he finally found Paul. Well, that makes perfect sense when you understand where Paul's at. This time he's in the Mamertine prison or something like it. It's one of those prisons, there are several of these in the city of Rome, just a, a, a kind of an underground chamber, un, literally underneath the streets of Rome, had several different levels to it. And for somebody like Paul who's sitting in death row, he's in the bo bottom part, bottommost part of that chamber. It just has a little opening up at ground level, just a little opening to let in some light, some air. But other than that, cold, dark, dismal, a very dismal situation. And here's the Apostle Paul, knowing that in the next couple of weeks, another month or two, he's going to have his head chopped off with an axe. His days are numbered. So here comes Onesiphorus to Rome looking for Paul. Here's this giant city, more than a million people. He's got to try to find this one guy, and he's nowhere to be found above ground. It's somewhere underneath the ground, one of those tiny holes. I mean, that's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Then you've got to consider this. In all those years, it's somewhere between 63, 68 A.D. That's kind of a rough approximation. And when Paul's released after that first trial, and he's out there in the other parts of the world traveling, while he's gone from Rome, the atmosphere here in Rome changes drastically. There's this emperor by the name of Nero, and he's a crazy guy. You've heard Rob talk about him before. One of the crazy things he does, he starts a fire, starts the city on fire. Why? Because there's this section of city where he, he, there are a bunch of old buildings, he wants to build new ones, and for years and years and years, the Roman Senate wouldn't let him do it. Well, Nero's this really selfish guy, and I'm going to get my way one way or the other. He starts the fire and burns down deliberately. There's a certain section he deliberately burns down. In fact, during the course of the fire, he encourages some of his soldiers to take torches and keep the fire. We haven't burned enough yet. Burns down a huge, hey, it's all burned down now. I guess we're going to have to rebuild, Right? Well, after the fire, there's this public outrage. Everybody's really mad, and the rumors are flying around. Nero was behind this fire. So to get himself out of the hot seat, he placed the blame on the Christians. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was the Christians that started the fire. So with all this anger and hatred that the citizens of Rome had, they now focus that upon Christians. And for the next couple years, there were somewhere between 63, 68 A.D., Christians become public enemy number one. 
just simply because they belong to Jesus. And here breaks out an intense time of persecution where Christians in and around Rome are being killed frequently and being killed in all different kinds of hideous ways. So here comes Onesiphorus to Rome at a time like that. He's not going to want to go around knocking door to door. Hey, do you know where the Apostle Paul is? Or could you direct me to the Mamertine prison? Mamertine? Why do you want to go there? Man, that's only the worst of the worst. What kind of criminal do you want to? I mean, asking those kind of questions would get you killed. So I say all of that just to emphasize when the Apostle Paul writes this letter, he's in a really tough spot. And yet you read the letter, you don't hear this guy complaining about his problems. Faith is strong, his spirit upbeat, he seems to be so happy. What kept him going? Before we answer that question, consider Timothy, the young man who's receiving this letter. He's a lifelong friend of the Apostle Paul. These two men are really close. And yet Timothy knows, my friend is about to die. The man who's always been there for me, the one that I've always been able to lean on and turn to for advice and counsel wisdom, he's not going to be around anymore. How am I going to get along without him? I mean, the grief that he must be feeling right now. And then, one of the reasons Paul's writing this letter is because he's officially passing the torch off to Timothy. He's handing off his legacy to him. And Timothy, I'm expecting, once I'm gone, I want you to carry on the work. Well, how do you follow an act like that? How do you follow the great Apostle Paul? Talk about pressure. Talk about a huge sense of responsibility that's now laid on his shoulders. You know, it's like the, the little girl that came running into the kitchen and said, Mom, you remember that blue vase out there in the living room? And all of a sudden, the mother stood straight up and got a look of concern on her face said, You mean the family heirloom? You mean the vase that was handed down in my family from generation to generation? The girl said, yep, that's the one I'm talking about. You need to know, this generation just dropped it. <laughs> that's how Timothy feels. He, he, he's, he's got this fear, I'm going to drop the baton. How do I carry on for Paul? I'm not like that guy at all. And he's right. Paul is strong and bold, and he's a take charge kind of a guy. He's outgoing, he's energetic. He's got this forceful personality. But Timothy's the exact opposite. He's shy, he's quiet, not in the best of health. He gets sick all the time. He doesn't have near the talents and gifts that Paul has. How's he going to carry on for a man like that? So at the moment that he's receiving this letter, he's got to feel with all of these challenges standing before him, he's got to feel so overwhelmed. And yet here's what's interesting. In the early part of the 4th century, there was a Christian, a historian by trade. His name was Eusebius, and he wrote a book on church history. And in that book, he talks about Timothy. And he's the one who tells us how from this moment on, for the next 30 years, he just stayed there in Ephesus. He kept working with that same church. It's so hard to work with. But for the next 30 years, he just remained faithful. For the next 30 years, he served Jesus with honor. So with all the challenges lying before him, what was it that kept Timothy going? And what was it that kept Paul going? Take a look. We're just going to work through the first couple of verses here. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is where I find my identity. Timothy, even though I'm in a gloomy dungeon, even though I'm stuck down here in this deep, dark hole, I, this is still my mission life. I'm here to represent Jesus. I'm here to serve the Lord. And the particular way I serve the Lord is as an apostle. So if right now I can't preach and teach to crowds because I'm stuck in this underground chamber, if I can't preach and teach to crowds of people, if the only thing I can do right now is pray and write letters, then I'm going to pray and write letters. Timothy, even though I'm down just to, to just the last few weeks of my life, my days are numbered, yet I still have a mission to carry out for God. Do you see what Paul's showing us? How do you keep going and not give in to all the troubles? How do you remain faithful? It's not an issue of trying harder, no. 
It's keeping your eyes fixed on the one who's faithful, the one who is always going to be faithful to us. I find my identity because of my connection to God. I know who I am. I know what I'm supposed to do, be doing. And I know I'm here. I am here by the will of God. I am here by divine appointment. Timothy, I am convinced, even though I'm stuck down in this gloomy dungeon, I'm convinced God still has a plan for me. Even here, I'm convinced he still has a purpose for me. And what is that purpose? I am here to help other people see and know the truth about Jesus so they can experience and discover for themselves that promise of life that is found in him. So to Timothy, my dear son, First Timothy, he said, my true son in the faith. But here the greeting gets so much more personal. See the close ties between these two? They become even closer. The bond is so tight to Timothy, the one who's so dear, so precious to me. Here's what I want to see happen in your life. Grace, mercy, peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. Now too many times we read that as though they're just mere words. Oh, that's a greeting and nothing more. Oh, grace, mercy, peace. Here are the specific ways God wants to bless your life. Take that word grace. One of the patterns you notice in the, in the letters that the Apostle Paul writes, every one of the letters he writes, he has this tendency. It always begins the same way and ends the same way. Somewhere, and you can check this out for yourself, somewhere in the very beginning of that letter and somewhere in the end of the letter, he's going to somewhere make mention of the grace of God. Grace to you or grace be with you. And why? Because at the beginning and the end, with that kind of a frame, what he's trying to say is one of the key ways that God pours out his favor upon our lives, one of the key ways he breathes his grace into us is through the words of this letter. As you actually open up this book and you invite God, talk, talk to me. You know, it's really interesting to me, one of the key insights. It's been found in the world of psychology, and it's also been found in the world of sociology. Both fields, both disciplines, all the research that they've done, they both learned this, that the determining factor in a person's self-esteem is not because of what that person thinks about themselves. No, it's because of what the most important person in their life thinks about them. Whether that's a coach, a teacher, a dad, a mom, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever stage in life you're in, whoever happens to be up on that pedestal for you, the one you admire above everybody else, the one whose opinion you value more than anybody else, whatever that most important person thinks about you determines whether you're going to feel good about yourself or not. If the most important person loves you and they approve of what you're doing, man, you feel great, you feel special. But if that most important person, if they don't even notice you, if they don't even seem to care, you're crushed and you feel invisible in spite of what everybody else in your world is trying to tell you. Well, what if we decided, just like Paul, that my most important person in life is going to be God? I don't care that I'm in prison right now. Uh, that my circumstances do not define who I am. I don't care what the rest of Rome's thinking. Hey, if he's in the Mamertine prison, he must be some awful sort of fellow. No, I don't, I don't worry about what they think. Here's what concerns me. What is God? What's he trying to say to me? What does he notice in my life? What is he trying to communicate? Because more than anything else, I want his love. I want his approval upon my life. You see, how do you keep going and not give in to all the troubles? How do you remain faithful? It's not a matter of trying harder. No, it's just keeping your eyes fixed on the one who's faithful. And he always will be faithful to us. And every day, just keeping your heart open to the grace that he wants to share. Just two more verses. Stick with me. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. You know, everybody in Rome thinks I must have done something terrible to wind up in the Mamertine prison, but I know the truth. I'm innocent. 
I'm innocent in the eyes of God, and I am innocent because of what Jesus did for me. Timothy, don't worry about me. Well, I'm stuck down here, and i got all this time on my hand. I'm, I'm not worried about what other people think. I'm not dwelling on all the troubles I've got. No, with all this time, I want to do something protective, productive. So you know what I do? Night and day, I pray. And when I pray, Timothy, I remember you in my prayers. See, here's another way that God breathes His grace into our lives through the prayers of other people, especially when you've got somebody like this praying for you, somebody who knows you really well. See, there was nobody who knew Timothy better than the Apostle Paul. All those years working together, man, he came to know that young man inside and out. Knows all his weaknesses, all his struggles, what he can handle, what he can't. Oh, no, Timothy's in this situation. i got to go to bat for him. I need to pray. And because he cares so much about this young man, when he prays, he prays with lots and lots of feeling, lots of emotion, and lots of passion. And how did that come about? How was it that the Apostle Paul was able to know Timothy so well? Because in all those years that they were working together, Timothy never tried to hide anything from Paul. Now, how do I know that? Here's my proof, verse 4. Recalling your tears. Think about this. Henry Cloud asked a, a really interesting question. He says, why do, you think, why do you think God put the tear ducts in our eyes? Why they are not somewhere else? I mean, was this a coincidence? I mean... Why not put the tear ducts in the armpits or down there between your toes where nobody can see them? And that way nobody can ever know when you're hurt. Nobody can ever know when you're sad. Nobody can ever know when you've been deeply touched because of what somebody else did. Why up here in the face where everybody's going to see? That's no accident. That is by design. We were made by God to be vulnerable. In other words, God wants other people to see and know when our hearts are broken. God wants other people to see and know when we're so happy, so moved, so proud because of what somebody close to us did that words cannot adequately express the joy we feel. To know how happy we are, to know how proud we are, you need to see those tears. He wants others to see and notice when you're upset or you're concerned or you're devastated because of some bad experience you just went through. Those, those tear ducts are up there for a reason. And this is what enabled the Apostle Paul to pray for Timothy and to be able to pray so well for him because through the years, Timothy always stayed close enough where Paul could see the tears. You want God's grace in your life? You've got to have other people praying for you. You can't get by without this. You've got to have other people praying for you. And in order for the others to pray well, you've got to get close enough so they really know who you are and what you're going through. They've got to get close enough where they see the tears and they know what you're wrestling with in your heart. One last thing. Verse 4, he says, I long to see you. Here's another way God pours out his favor on our lives, through the friendships, those special people that God puts in the world. When you became a Christian, you became a part of a church, so now you could have some very unique and wonderful relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. See, this isn't just Paul helping Timothy. Here is Timothy helping Paul. I long to see you, Timothy. I need you here. And, and, and Timothy's on his way. Paul knows that he's on his way. And, and Paul knows once Timothy gets there, this special friendship they have, once he gets on the scene and the two of them have a chance to just sit down and talk and really share and interact with each other, it's going to have a profound effect upon his life. He says there, my heart, my soul will just be filled with joy. <laughs> now, you just can go on and on and on through this chapter and every single verse keeps going like that, mentioning all the specific ways of how God pours out his strength, how God pours out his love, how God displays his goodness, how God wants to be able to move and work in your life and mine.
I heard of a Sunday school teacher who had a really interesting way of trying to encourage the boys and girls, the little children in her Sunday school class, an encouraging way of trying to encourage, uh, an interesting way of trying to encourage them to stay close to Jesus. Every year at the beginning of spring, she would, she would give each child a plant, just a little plant to take home and be responsible for. I want you to take care of this. And with the plant, there was a card, and the card had instructions on it, and the instructions were these. Every day, the boys and girls were to read their Bibles and pray, and only then could they water the plant. It was nothing hard, you know, just two or three verses at the moment uh, uh, for each day, but, but, but take time each day to just let God talk to you, and then take time to talk to him as well, and then go help the plant. Well, they bring it home. You can imagine what the children learn. Over the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, there's going to be days, a series of days, if they don't read their Bible, then they don't pray. If they don't read their Bible, they don't pray. There's no help for the plant, no water for the plant. And what happens to the plant? It begins to wilt and die. And now the children can see with their own eyes. Now they realize what's happening to that plant is exactly what's happening to my soul. Listen, God's grace, it's not just his attitude towards us. It is that. Here's how he feels about us. He always looks at us with favor. He always has this eager desire to want to treat us better than we deserve. That's the way he always feels about us. But it's more than that. God's grace is not only his attitude towards us. God's grace is also his action for us. How he wants to move and work in our lives. But he cannot take that action until, first of all, we open up to him every day. Open up the word and say, God, talk to me. Every day praying just unloading and sharing all those anxieties and those burdens. Every day, keeping your friends informed so they know how to pray well for you. And every day, taking that journey, making sure you're not taking this journey alone. You're staying in touch with those Christian friends. But are we doing that? I mean, every day, do you open your heart to the grace of God? Every day, do you open your life to the Lord so he can pour out his living water on your dry and thirsty?